Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. So today on The Real Bottom Line, we're talking to Janelle Sobey. She is the CEO and founder of Riddle, a software company whose mission is to measure the impact of environmental and social conscious actions. In this episode, we're going to talk about raising money, how to sell a vision, how to build a team, and how to make sure that you have the best advice at all the right points. So enjoy our conversation today. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Well, hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Janelle Sobey, CEO of Riddle. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you for having me, Wendy. I'm so excited that you're here today, especially as you're kind of taking a little bit of a work Taking your work overseas, you're in London working for three months. Tell me a little bit about that. How did that come about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I would say that over the years in business, I've really learned that um, business is done through relationships still. Um, so as much as we can automate and digitize, and of course, you know, we've gone through a whole year and a half of online conferences. Um, I still think the best way, or at least how I've experienced success in the past is growth has been face-to-face and building business relationships. So as soon as um, the UK hit, uh, you know, 92% antibodies in their population and 80% double vax, um, it felt like a fairly safe place. Um, things are open again. Conferences are happening in person, trade shows and expos. So um, for a startup, it seems like a good idea to be, you know, back in conferences, expos and meeting people face to face. That's so cool. So you, you're in a startup now, but when we go back to your, in your history, you actually, you started kind of working in government, helping startups. Yeah. Yeah. So back then I was um, an independent consultant. So uh, essentially a, a sole proprietor as the structure. So I ran it as a, a business for five years. Um, And during that time, I would have done work with what I would say was private sector led um, organized funded initiatives and and projects. Um, So it definitely included like the Pondeshpande Center, which um, the Deshpande Foundation that's at MIT and in India funded. um, Jerry Pond would have funded that work at that time and then ranged through to say like the New Brunswick Business Council, which again, Mm. private sector led. Um, and so I, I picked up and worked on a lot of contracts in that time. I definitely supported work, um, around young people, youth and startups. And so had built uh, a social enterprise accelerator for the Pondish Bonday center, uh, mm. and worked closely with startups over a couple of years, but that transition, I think was, um, was a natural one where I had learned and continued to grow and learn through other companies to finally, you know, collect enough expertise and 
and experience and knowledge to feel comfortable to launch my own. Oh, that's interesting. And you went to um, Code and Mortar for a while as um, one of the owners there as well. So how, how, how would you compare and contrast like when you're building an ecosystem to actually running an organization? Yeah, it's definitely, it's different and, and similar in some ways. So in the first five years of my career where I was doing independent consultancy work, you know, it was still predominantly relationship-based. And Mm -hmm. in that work, it was services still. Um, The company that I bought into, which was Norix at the time, and then we rebranded Dakota Mortar, it was a tech like um, software software um, and um, like mobile apps and WordPress builds, um, but still technically with services. So people were buying your time for development time. Mm. Um, and so that transition was fairly an easy one because I understood, you know, the business model. Um, technology was not something, even though I'd worked with technology companies before, I had never been um, actively involved in the building of technology. So that five years was really helpful for understanding, you know, um, and, and getting really um, a good foundation of uh, technology build. Um, from the start to finish. So you're not necessarily a coder, but you understand what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, it's or funny. I a coder. <laughs> Can you code? <laughs> Good question. I mean, I coded my first website uh, in grade nine, oh and God. it's embarrassing to say this now um, because for whatever reason at the time, it seemed really normal. Maybe I was younger. Grade nine might've been too high. So maybe it was grade seven. Anyway, somewhere between seven and grade nine, I coded my first website and it was a dolphin website. It was about giving people education around dolphins. Um, And so that would have been the first and probably like last time I I built a a website, but no, I'm not a coder. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I would say like expertise required or knowledge required of technology. It does take a little while to ramp up on getting to understand the vocabulary. And mm. so I think that's really crucial if you're going to work in the tech sector. Um, but I think the biggest, yeah, that I've always looked at technology as a tool. And so when you're approaching, you know, you're trying to solve for a particular problem or deliver a certain solution, I've always looked at tech as a tool that's going to enable scale and growth. And so no matter what solution you come up with, I know that you can apply a technology solution to it to help scale the impact or or the problem that you're solving. Mm. And so if you look at it through technology as a solution um, lens, then, you know, anyone can use technology as a tool and you don't need to be an expert. Right. So the question that comes up for me now is how do you know when to go and hire a firm and build something versus find something off the shelf? Like how, how would you advise people on that? Yeah, you end up with three options, right? You end up with hire a firm. So essentially that's like outsource. It's not in-house that you're building. You can hire an internal team. So hire a developer um, or buy something that already exists um, and or be able to customize um, something that already exists. And I think it depends a lot on what your requirements are. So what is it that you're trying to build? Um, how much time do you have to build it? And how much money do you have to build it? Uh, <laughs> Why is the price for software so different depending on where you go? <laughs> oh, my word, yeah. Um, well, developers 
are um, highly skilled and experienced, and they are expensive as a result. Uh, they're also in short supply. And mm. so that makes them even more expensive. And so that's why software can be really expensive. Um, and that's why when you look at um, like startups, you we ended up you know, calling a startup its own label because it, technology companies developed a new business model of needing a lot of heavy upfront capital, working for years on building products before there was revenue coming in, let alone mm. margins. Yeah. And so, um, and so the, it, it's been uh, like technology and software itself has been expensive because it's people's time. Like it's still, you know, people coding every line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. It's not like you can, you know, make the pin faster <laughs> because, you know, Adam Smith, whatever his name was that said the production piece, it's, it's a whole, it's people's minds you're using, not uh, mm. machinery. Um, so that's an interesting thing. So now you're doing a, your own startup. You've moved on from that uh, organization. You guys uh, sold that company, I believe. And now you're in your own thing. So, and you talked about needing so much upfront money. So can you talk to me a little bit about how have you raised money and how, how do, if you're looking at doing a startup, do you raise the money to get the, to get things going? Yeah. I mean, everyone's story is going to be different when it comes to building a company. And I often liken it to um, like child rearing. So, you know, everyone, there's key milestones in um, doing raises or, or yeah. building a business um, in the same way that there'd be, you know, key milestones in raising a kid, but everyone is gonna approach that differently. And you kind of have to feel out what works for you and your company. Um, and so you're gonna do it differently. Um, so it's hard to say like, you know, what works for some and not for others, but there will definitely be key milestones in a raise. Um, we were a bit different in that I had been thinking about this problem for probably 10 years mm -hmm. and was thinking and collecting information about, you know, this, the solution, um, the problem, the business model, and the business model was always the challenging part. Yeah. But I started with a business plan and that's not the norm, I don't think anymore. <laughs> so a lot of people won't put the time in, I don't think, to build a business plan. And in fact, you know, a lot of startup advice you get now is you don't need to do a business plan. So I liked one. Um, it helped me get everything together from, you know, marketing team projections. Um, but so we were different in that we entered that business plan into a business plan competition and that got us our first 150,000 equity investment okay. and so that kick-started okay you know this is happening now we've got to get a team in place we have investors in before we've really even gotten anything off the ground or together wow so that was like even that's like pre pre-revenue isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, that's yeah, exactly. fascinating. Do you think having that business plan, like if you're saying that the advice is coming out now, don't bother or do it differently. Did it give you more confidence as yes. you were, as you rolled out? For sure. And it's funny, like so many things, the reason, you know, we're often told not to do a business plan is because it's, and it's true. It's, it's not going to go to plan. It's not, no. but at least you have a hypothesis documented that you're trying to move toward. And at least it also gives you what you're testing against. 
So if you made a lot of assumptions in your business plan about what you think the right sales or marketing strategies were going to be, it's documented. You can use those to circulate across your team so everyone's rowing in the same direction. And then you just test against them. If they fail, they fail. If you identify better sales strategies that weren't your business plan, of course, that's going to happen. But it gives you a good foundation for getting started and getting everyone moving in the same direction. And also, to your point, yeah, confidence, like being confident in, I don't know if this is going to work, but this is what I think the be- my best shot at it working is. Do you think that the time you spent kind of ruminating, if you will, for the 10-year period and gathering data and putting things together, has that helped you avoid the too many pivots? Like, I, I feel like I, I, um, sometimes with startups, the, you, the reason you can't write a business plan is that by the time you get it written, they've pivoted three times and done something a little different. What are your thoughts on that, on the pivot? Yeah, I think the pivot's uh, necessary and it's part of the journey. When I say necessary, I would be surprised if startups um, haven't gone through a pivot um, of some sort. So, um, you know, our, my startup is based in my um, education background. I taught it at university level. Um, it's an area that I'm really passionate about. So I know a lot about it and we've still pivoted multiple times okay. at trying to get closer to product market fit. And so you think that you can develop a solution, but the reality is until you've got people using the product in their hands, and paying for it, then you don't really know what those urgent nuanced pain points are, how they're, how they're going to use a product daily, um, you know, how it's going to improve their, their work, um, how you make them look good. There's what motivates them to use the product. There's just so many questions that even though you think it's a solution, you don't know until they're using it. How do you build in a feedback loop, Janelle, so that you can know or how do you stay in touch on, keep your fingers on the pulse of what's important to the customer? Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a few key metrics that can help you with that, that are um, easy ones. You know, if you've got um, low churn rates or your annual subscriptions um, uh, decreasing significantly month over month, um, you can watch data coming into your software. So, um, or in our case anyway, so or in like other types, maybe it's like user acquisition, but you can see the rate of um, how often someone's using your software um, on a regular basis. And that gives you an indication of how valuable it may or may not be to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some easy, like you can stand back and watch the feedback loop. Um, so more, sorry, observational. Um, but other ways that we've built in is continuing to do prospecting with prospective customers. So, you know, having detailed market research conversations with them around their needs, um, uh, but then also working with a lot of our existing customers to get clarity on what's working for them and what's not working from them. So it's really a lot of back and forth communications. And um, we've been fortunate to find good partners early on who are interested in building what we're building and so are interested in putting the time in to give us really good feedback on what they need or what they think the market needs. That's awesome. Um, so you've raised some money. How do you, it feels like in the startup world that to raise money, um, you're selling a vision. How do you sell a vision? Like how do you craft a vision that is sellable? Yeah, you're, yeah, I mean, you're selling, you're selling the team 
mm-hmm. as much as the solution okay. and the vision for sure at the early stage. Um, and so, yeah, how do you sell a vision? That's a good question. Um, I think in those early days, it really is just about the idea. So people are focused on, does the idea make sense? And do I think that this is a person that is capable, i.e. knows the subject matter, has a good team in place um, to be able to possibly deliver upon all of these? Um, and so selling the vision, I think, is really about make, simplifying it and helping people connect the problem is this, it affects these people. This is how I'm going to solve it with this solution. And here's how we make money. So that's different from selling a grandiose big idea of what it could be. You Mm -hmm. have to sprinkle in some of that, but an investor really cares about how am I going to make money and on what timeline. And so you do need to be able to distill your vision down to here's how you're going to make money um, and on a certain timeline. I do like to talk about the vision a lot. And the vision, depending on what type of company you're building. So for us, you know, we've probably got a 10 year trajectory where we're not going to have enough data or the right data or enough of the product built that it's not going to at least take us 10 years. And you have to sell the vision in that instance, right? Because you almost build your product and your company in phases. So in phase one, we're selling this. In phase two, we're selling this. And we're building with the intention of getting to a very specific point. And if the vision is more attractive than phase one of the business, then you definitely want, and more lucrative, then you definitely want to sell the overarching, like here's where we're headed. We had an interesting conversation a while back, Janelle, about the fact that it seems that all the funders or or VCs, venture capitalists, a lot of them are looking for unicorns. Um, Mm -hmm. They're always seem to be, uh, and we thought, Man, that just seems like everyone wants to hit a grand slam instead of, you know, getting triples and, you know, even doubles uh, if we use baseball analogies and and get a good return, but maybe not, you know, massive amounts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think like when you're out shopping your idea around and meeting with um, venture uh, capital firms or investment um, organizations or even angels, you'll end up having conversations with a few of them that, you know, and this is quite pervasive within the VC world is that you as a startup have to project or show a market size of a billion dollars. And I think it's one thing to be able to show your market size or that your market size has the potential or your company has the potential at someday possibly hitting a billion dollar company. I think Um, And so VCs will straight up ask for that and look for that and often won't continue conversations if you can't show your trajectory towards a billion dollars. When I look around at some of the successful companies that we've had out of the East Coast and even across the country, um, and even at the time, North America, you know, one of the biggest exits um, at that time had been Radiant 6 or Q1 Labs. Well, those companies respectively were around the $20 million revenue mark and sold for, you know, around the $300 million mark. And those are major successes that we still talk about, you know, even today, 15 years later. And there's nothing wrong with those companies and all those investors and, and, um, you know, individuals that were involved did really well. And so I've often thought that asking companies and startups to you know, state that they're going to be a billion dollar company 
is just telling a lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's a it feels like a waste of everyone's time, uh, frankly, to put work into showing how you could be a billion dollar company when you're so early in in the the business itself. And so, as a requirement, I've often struggled with that, and it feels like in from the start a very inauthentic relationship as a result mm. and it's difficult when you're building a business to then uh, trust those that are supposed to support you throughout and who have a stake in your company if you've already built it on a lie and I'm not saying that you know it's a lot like you can build beautiful financial statements that show that you can hit a billion dollars for sure but you know how likely is that to happen um, and, uh, and I think that's just where I've often struggled with that requirement from VCs and it's immediately made me distrust maybe that um, VC firm. And it's also made me question, like, do we really know what um, ingredients equals success in startups? The ability to pretend you're going to be a billion dollars <laughs> so you can get money, right? Yeah, that's interesting. And um I'd like to talk a little bit about building teams, if I could, because obviously you're the head of the team um, and, uh, you know, you're hiring tech, you're hiring other folks as well to assist you on this journey. What has been the hardest part about attracting good talent um, and how do you know who to hire? Mm, I've been very fortunate um, my entire career where I've often been very well surrounded by amazing people. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but, you know, your network, your advisors, your investors, your um, staff, your founders, um, I've just been really, really fortunate to have had good people around me. And there's this saying that I heard in university, which was that I always held on to, which is, you know, um, great leaders aren't well-rounded they're well-surrounded and that's always wrong really true to me because people say you know hire smarter people than you but it's not just about hiring smarter people it's about finding people who are good matches and a support to you and so one of the things in um in the startup that we've done is you know going back to that concept of trust you know building a, a company from the ground up requires a fairly strong foundation in the relationships between everyone, because there are definitely going to be hard times. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when those hard times, you know, get tough, you've got to know um, that you can get through those. Uh, there's not going to be any breakdowns that, you know, everyone will do what they can to keep afloat. And uh, so trust has been like the biggest thing um, that we've, um, we've employed for hiring in the startup. Um, so that often looks like, you know, and you see this more and more often where people are hiring old friends or they're bringing on founders who, you know, they've courted or gotten to know for a really long time. Um, or, uh, or there's just like a natural chemistry in the same way as if you were marrying someone. And then the other thing that I found that's been uh, and we'd be lost without it, is complete and utter buy-in to the purpose, the vision, why we're building what we're building, how it's solving problems, um, and then buy-in to you as a leader, um, I think is really important for success of the team as well. Because if you've got those ingredients of trust, buy-in um, to the leadership of the company, and then full commitment and understanding around purpose, it's 
it for us, it's turned into almost like a magical team. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's congratulations yeah. on that. I can we shift and talk a bit about your vision for Riddle? I love the name of the company. Where did that come from first? Thanks. Uh, so Riddle came from this idea that impact investors, government, corporations are investing in environmental and social outcomes more now out of curiosity um, and interest in solving the problem um, than ever before. So they're more curious about solving riddles. And we predominantly see that in the impact investing space where they're investing with the intention of driving um, good, but they don't know how we achieve those results. And so they're on a journey equally as much as say um, the entrepreneur at investing to see, can we deliver certain positive impact outcomes that are social or environmental in nature um, as they are about getting those financial returns? And we started to see that with, you know, Zuckerberg and um, Gates, who were investing in everything from malaria to food shortages um, and testing, just testing solutions, testing products. How do we solve for these huge um, market size problems? Um, and we're more curious about solving the riddle. Oh, well, that's interesting. So who, who, are, what problem are you solving? Yeah. So <laughs> I mentioned earlier, like I've been thinking about this for 10 years. And so the problem I've been thinking about for 10 years has really been around, you know, why can't we solve for affordable housing? Why is there still homelessness in my tiny community? Um, why can we not slow climate change down? And it's never made sense to me. And when I say it's never made sense to me, even when I was a little girl, the same homeless man still sits outside of the Fredericton Farmer's Market that was there when I was little. And I always, in my mind, that man has been such a, a catalyst for me because he didn't fit in there. I knew it didn't make sense that he didn't have a home from that age. And so it's always motivated me to think through, why aren't we solving these problems? It's not lack of motivation. It's not lack of financial resources. It's not lack of smart people working on them. Um, and it came down to, to it being a data problem. We don't understand what works and what doesn't work for solving some of these really complex in nature problems. But if we can build an iPhone that is waterproof, um, then surely we can solve for homelessness um, or climate change. And so I, we really boiled it down to it being a data problem. And so when you're looking at, okay, if you can gather enough data at volume, apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to do predictions around when you invest in certain variables, is it delivering a positive or negative impact? And there's enough different types of organizations that are investing to deliver certain um, environmental and social impact outcomes. We just need to start collecting that data, data at scale. So the idea is in the future, we'd be able to do prediction modeling, understand what works um, and what doesn't work at solving some of these problems, and then be able to do you know, publicly available aggregates um, and understand you know, how do we actually solve for homelessness and of course, by jurisdiction or with certain variables. Um, but the idea is that we would have better data um, at scale and be able to replicate what works um, and stop what doesn't work uh, from an investment perspective. 
who are your clients right now, Janelle? They range. So we're still in the early stage of, you know, we've identified nine prospective customer segments. And so we're testing across all the customer segments to see, you know, who we get the most polar traction from. We started, oddly enough, with provincial-wide nonprofits um, and then quickly felt pull and urgency. And this probably won't be that surprising, but from uh, oil and gas, mining, uh, energy, um, construction, and real estate. And the re- and I never thought that those would be the first companies we'd be working with, but they're under a lot of regulatory pressure. Um, there's a lot of certs that they already have to apply for. Um, they are investing heavily because of public perception mm. and expectation in the environment. And um, all of them have incredibly high um, uh, emission rates. And so their environmental footprint is really high. And so they're interesting to work with because they have urgency and they're investing heavily. Um, so those have been the customer segments we're working with now. They And I would say think that they also have incredible public uh, pressure as well. You know, oh, yeah. uh, the, the rise of the um, environmentally, socially uh, um, investing from the retail side, from the individuals is higher and higher. And they're looking for companies who are doing good in the world too. Um, and so does your platform allow for people to prove what they're being, how they're, how well they're doing, like how the measure impact, because impact is such a hard thing to measure. Yeah. So we talked about the vision of the company earlier. So what the, the software does today is it allows for companies, organizations to be able to collect, manage, um, measure, uh, and report their impact. And so when we talk about measurement, um, you know, right now there's a lot of ESG reporting. So yes. corporations are doing ESG reporting and you might do those reports for multiple frameworks. So you might do a SASE or a GRI or a TCSD, and you're likely doing all three and probably some others, depending on the company. And so the, the software allows for you to collect one data point and then report to all of your required in all of your required formats. But because we're interested in that data point as an impact point, we also look at measurement. So reporting ESGs is just putting out a metric out of context into the world. And what we're interested in is what difference did that investment make? So you invested in an ESG initiative or a specific metric, what value did that create in your company, in the community, and can we apply a dollar amount to it? And we can. Mm -hmm. So these, we're kind of pulling on um, for the measurement piece from a few different areas that are emerging or have been older. So like social return on investment calculations, um, we utilize impact measurement um, methodology we utilize. And then there's good work being done out of um, the Harvard Business School um, called the Impact Weighted Accounts Project. And they firmly believe that you can value and quantify the um, social and environmental investments companies are doing into dollars and put them on your financial statements or alongside your financial statements. So that's exciting because it means that companies can literally apply a dollar value to the investments that they're making in social and environmental impact. And measure a return, I would suspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. So for companies that are smaller, um, you know, these, these seem like they're really big organizations. Would, would that be correct that you're dealing with right now? That's right. For companies that are smaller, um, 
you can do it at a smaller scale. So okay. we still have like our company would still have pricing um, for, available to smaller companies. But when you're looking at doing impact measurement, you don't, um, I think we look at it as being overly complex and we really do just need to simplify it. So yeah. it's really about identifying, you know, what's your impact strategy or what you want to achieve. And even if you pick three impact outcomes, like, you know, I want to have a positive impact on my community and employees. Those are very, there's a very generic one. Um, I want to lower my carbon emissions or footprint. And I don't, anyway, a third one. And you just start there and you identify, okay, how will I know that I've done that? What are some key activities that I can achieve that? And then assign ind associated indicators. And it's really that simple. You get your benchmarks in place and you start measuring from there. Um, I, you don't, when you're a small company, you don't have to do ESG reporting. You can start to look at it and, um, and understand the formats of it, but at, at that size, you don't need to. Um, it's really being utilized right now by publicly traded companies and then private companies that have some sort of other motivation to be reporting on it. So the triple bottom line was a phrase that was really popular. Um, does this, uh, do you see your product fitting into helping with the reporting of that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about the triple bottom line, it's people, planet, profit. And the, so oftentimes when we talk about social impact, it's people, that's yeah. the people in that equation, planet, environment, and then profit. And so I've always been a firm advocate for um, recognizing that the future of business will be those that can deliver all three, a mm -hmm. positive impact on people, planet, and also deliver a profit. Um, because the NGO model doesn't really work any better than the for-profit model. And so I think the triple bottom line allows you to converge both of those models together to build more holistic companies that people want to work in. Um, and so the reporting requirements, so when, when I talked about value, being able to really show that impact, it's, it's more than just showing you know, stories and anecdotes of here's the good work we did. It's about valuing it and translating it into the dollars so that it can start to be compared with other organizations and companies. And I think that's when people start to understand that doing good as a company in the world really does have a dollar um, benefit associated with it. So um, yeah, we definitely help with that reporting. And I think people gaining more confidence in, okay, if I invest in my employees, I have this return and I can put that on my financial statements or alongside it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause how would I report that right now? Yeah. So you can put it alongside your financial statements, depending on the company. Um, so even locally on the East coast, you know, banks are starting to ask companies for um, their environmental and their ESG risk assessments and plans. And so like when you do those, it's natural that it's going to, um, that it's going to then uh, spill over into um, what will soon be, I think, more widely accepted is the dollar. So what value are you creating? So how and then investors you, are starting to look for it too. Um, so the question is, how do you uh, make yourself known? Is that what the trade shows that you're going over and making these relationships is just getting Riddle more known and that you're the solution that can provide for this? That can, can provide the for answer? For sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions right now. And Miss um, Melanie has uh, one right away. So we'll put her on and get her to unmute. Melanie is also a fellow startup in Halifax. Yes. yes. So one question. Okay, I'll, I'll choose. <laughs> Janelle, that was really interesting and inspiring. So thank you for sharing that story and your ongoing story. Um, I guess uh, we are also, we are operating along a triple bottom line. Um, so a lot of what you said and talking about social impact investors is really, really piqued my interest. Why it's hard to just nail down one question. But I've been wondering about this for a while. Um, do you see a correlation between this, Wendy mentioned this, um, the 10x unicorn um, seeking that and startups perhaps um, artificially chasing something that's never quite realistic. Do you see a relationship between that kind of approach in the ecosystem and the high failure rates in startups? Just on, uh, you know, from your, maybe your experience and your opinion or. Uh, yeah, it'll definitely be my opinion and <laughs> my experience, but um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, we all know that the, the failure rate is nine out of 10 startups will fail. But I think that startups are failing because of lack of capital early on, and then the team structure likely as well. Um, product, of course, like if you don't get product market fit, um, those three are really critical. Um, but capital, even if you have the other two things, so a really good team and product market fit, if you don't have enough capital coming in, you know, you you run you run out you literally run out of runway. And so I do think that if you can't play the game or deliver what you need to to investors and VCs, which are asking for you to do that, then you're not going to get the capital. Um, so I don't, I don't know, to be honest, um, I have thought about, you know, who we're investing in. So like, you know, under 2% of female founders received um, equity across this country or sorry, 2% of equity across the country went to women founders, um, which is a shockingly low amount of money um, to be going to female founders. And so I think it's like how we're allocating it for sure, whether it's, you know, the, the billion dollar or unicorn that they're all looking for, um, or if there's something else going on in who we're allocating the funds to, there's definitely something broken in that vetting process because nine out of 10 is not, um, it's not success, it's not success. Right, this is why, and it seems to be like a vicious cycle because they keep seeking nine out of 10 or that unicorn because nine out of 10 fail and they need to get that return. So I understand the math and the motivation behind it. It almost seems like a vicious cycle. If we could maybe identify what's broken, it might open up the funding landscape to, you know, a lot more um, successful businesses, which everyone would benefit from, which is what you were, were talking about before when you talked about the, you know, Radian 6, great success story um, in the region. And people still talk about it, but it's not that 1 billion. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, if there's anyone else just on mute, otherwise uh, we'll just keep talking for a second. Um, Janelle, what's next for Riddle? What's the big, what's, what's your big project you're working on now? Um, so over the next few months, we have some key milestones associated with um, 
large corporate co-product development partnerships. Um, so looking to secure a few of those. Um, and that's our, what we would consider our biggest milestone, mm-hmm. um, as well as ones that are revenue-based. So continuing to build up our, our user and account acquisition. Um, and then we've got some product milestones as well. So our, we've got some accreditations uh, and certifications that we uh, are working toward getting in the, the product. And we've got three under our belt now. We've got one more that we'd like to achieve by the end of this uh, fiscal year. Um, so I'd say those are our three big milestones is those corporate co-product development partnerships uh, continue to increase in usage and revenue. And for us, even at this stage, usage still looks like, okay, um, we're curious about how you would use the product. So we'll give it significantly discounted or free um, so that we can continue to learn from it. Um, and then revenue goals and, uh, and the, the product accreditation. Interesting. It's such a balancing act of getting new clients, making sure the product's coming up, all those things. How do you how do you decide where you're going to spend your day? Like you wake up today, Janelle. How do you decide where you're going to spend your energy? Yeah. So one thing I've learned is consistency works, and small habits and routines really work as well. Um, your business isn't a business, so I've often joked to my mom that I'm um, playing uh, pretend business or playing business because until you're profitable are you really running a business um and so uh uh, long answer to say sales um so you know sales clients um customers uh, i believe that needs to be your core focus as a founder every day and you know that can then translate into marketing and product but at the end of the day if you're focused on how are we selling this and building a better customer relationship and experience Then you're focused on building a business. Um, so I always will have to often remind myself to focus back on like, nope, this is, you've got your outreaches for the day, your meetings for the day, um, proposals being issued, sales will be the focus. So it's almost like you're focused on the inputs. Like I'm going to make this many calls, this many connections, this many proposals, that type of stuff? Well, sometimes, I mean, sometimes one big account or client is worth the 10 to 20 meetings it might take. And and that could be a a big milestone that you need. Yeah. Excellent. Melanie, you had another question? I do. Um, Sorry, I got got like three. But anyway, (laughs) I was really curious because um, being an operator along a triple bottom line is our social impact startup. Um, of course, funding and, you know, investment capital is a different, takes a different path. So we've done well with grant funding and we're really well supported in the ecosystem here um, in that regard. But VC is not necessarily going to be something that uh, is a path for us. So when you talk about social impact investors, I mean, if the name says it all. Um, if you're developing and trying to engage as a startup founder with a social impact uh, startups, how do you do that? Like, how would you advise? What motivates the most? How would you kind of structure your your um, your engagement with them so that they see the value in terms that actually mean the most to them, what they're looking for? Um, just to clarify, Melanie, so how would a social impact oriented business engage with prospective VCs? Uh, or 
any investors, investors that are really looking into um, investing in social impact, perhaps not necessarily the unicorn. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I would say, yeah, you end up with investment firms who are totally focused on impact and then they have, so an impact investment firm, um, still considered VC and would have, um, would have like a, a theory of change model or a, a specific um, impact that they themselves are trying to create. And so, and there's, of course, you know, there's, there's many and many, there's so many of them. And so getting really familiar with, you know, what impact outcomes are they trying to achieve with their funds um, and understanding where in their cycle of investments they are. So, you know, some funds or uh, VC firms, you, you know, uh, may have already ran through their fund and they might've already done all of their investments. Um, so you want to be really mindful of that as well. But uh, essentially, I think you want to start with understanding what impact are they trying to achieve because they're only looking for companies that can deliver that impact. Um, and then also, you know, look at their portfolio. So have they invested in similar companies to yours? Um, and sometimes it's helpful if you have the time to, which, you know, depending on who you're meeting with, it's helpful to connect in with their, their portfolio. So connect with um, someone that they've actually invested in, have a conversation about you know, what they're looking for, what the reporting requirements look like, what support looks like. Um, and depending on your structure, you may get to pick who you approach um, and invest in um, and who invests in you. Well, sorry, you get to pick no matter what, but it depends on how much money you need and when. <laughs> um, and so I think like what's good about impact investors is they have a lot of clarity around what they want and what they're trying to achieve and in which geographical locations. So just I think do your research around that. And then when you know you you can solve those problems for them, um, then it's certainly an easier sell. Awesome, that's great. helpful. Thank that's you. That's great advice, Janelle. Thank you for that. Um, I was gonna ask one more question. Um, I really felt that it really resonated with me when you talked about not well-rounded, but well-surrounded. Have you been deliberate about building that surround and how did you do it? Yes, very deliberate. I think at different points, in a company cycle, you need different um, expertise, advisors, support, so like cheerleaders. Um, and so being really intentional about what skills you don't have and what gaps exist in the company and being really intentional about predicting when you're going to need that support or expertise or knowledge and then ensuring that you've got a few um, in your relationship uh, Rolodex to be able to pick up the phone and call um, when you need a hand with that certain expertise. And so, yeah, I think for over a decade, I've been fairly intentional about it. And in a startup, when you're strapped for time and money, um, having smart people around you um, to help you. Uh, and you'd be surprised uh, if you just ask, um, who will step up and, and help you with something. Um, and so I've gotten really good at saying, you know, do you know anyone who can give me office space? Or uh, can I get tickets to this thing? Or can you make a referral for me? Um, now, of course, those are very specific asks, but the same thing goes for advice. So if you say, I need to talk to uh, someone in the real estate market who's at this level, maybe a CFO, do you know of anyone or can you put me in touch? Um, uh, so having smart people around you 
um, for the gaps in the company. But then I'd also say for the positive mindset and the encouragement and the cheerleading. So, you know, there can be lots of low moments in building a company. And I think startups are especially hard. And you need someone to remind you, whether it's your team um, or your a co-founder um, or an investor to say, it's okay. Like, you know, you've got, you've done this, you're going here. Or just a, remind you, a reminder to kind of pull you back up. This too shall pass. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I have to say, I really enjoyed our conversation today, Janelle. Um, and I think the real bottom line today is you're, it's not about being well-rounded. It's about being well-surrounded. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.